Hey everybody, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. Tonight, in our 30th session, we're going to cover the back half of Chapter 3 and all of Chapter 4, he said, somewhat optimistically, of Book 2 of The Fellowship of the Ring, in which we face the might of Karathras, who is so mighty that he defeated my class schedule last week and has left me with something like 20 slides to get through tonight. And then we delve deep into Moria. So we are going to move rapidly tonight. We are going to move at quite a pace, let me tell you. It's going to be a fun ride. There's a lot to discuss and a ton of brilliant, brilliant content by the time that we get into Moria, though that is not in any way to diminish how awesome Karathras is either. As I said, almost 20 slides. Let's let's get into it. Uh, we're going to begin, though, not with our uh, not with our slides, not with our chapter content tonight, but with a quick recap because there was some confusion this week in email about the uh, about the fellowship and about the ages of the fellowship in particular. So I am going to give you this handy recap. These are the members of the Fellowship of the Ring. Frodo Baggins, aged 50. Samwise Sam Gamgee, aged 38. Mariadic Mary Brandybuck, aged 36. Peregrine Pippin Took, aged 28. These are our four hobbits. And as we know, our hobbits live a somewhat unconventional life compared to, you know, modern human beings. The lifespan of the average hobbit is going to be somewhere between 90 and 100 years. Obviously, a few hobbits, including Bilbo Baggins, have managed to wildly exceed that, but that's mostly the influence of the ring, we are assured. But despite the fact that their lifespan isn't so much terribly greater than, you know, contemporary 20th and 21st century human beings, they seem to mature more slowly. We're told that really hobbits aren't adults until the age of 30, which is of particular interest, of course, for Pippin. Then we get our man, our pair of man here, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, currently aged 87, and Boromir, son of Denethor of Gondor, currently aged 40. Those numbers are slightly misleading because while Aragorn and Boromir are both men, they are men of different lines. The Numenorians, the kind of the, the greatest men of antiquity, lived for a long time, though of course the fact that they only lived for a long time was, was part of the motivation for their downfall. Their desire for immortality is what led to the fall of Numenor directly. But back in the days of Numenor, the kings at least would live for centuries. Many of the first kings of Numenor lived more than 400 years. Now, the Dúnedain, Aragorn's people, still live for a significant amount of time. They still live for between 200 and 250 years, something like that. The Gondorians and the Rohirrim live for a far shorter period. They only live for about 120 years. So really, Aragorn and Boromir are about about the same age in terms of their their place in their lifespan, their expected lifespan. They're about at the same age, kind of not even early middle age, I suppose we would say. They're, they're in the full flush of their maturity and power and capability. Then we have Gimli, son of Glowen. He is currently aged 139 years. We know this for a fact. Dwarves live for about 250 years, so he's about in the middle of his life too. Then we get a couple of interesting and slightly confusing ones. We get Legolas, the son of Thranduil. We have no date given for the birth of Legolas. We don't know how old Legolas is. He doesn't appear in any kind of... Uh any accounts of, you know, the Second Age, so we can be pretty confident that he is born in the Third Age. There is one interesting detail that we can pull out of Legolas's life 
that might give us a suggestion of how old he is, because we learn that Legolas has never been to Lorien before he goes there with the Fellowship, which isn't terribly significant considering how shuttered and sequestered the the elven kingdom of Mirkwood is. They're, they're kind of, you know, insular. They're not terribly social people. They certainly don't seem to travel very much, but it was not always thus. There was free trade between Mirkwood, between Thranduil's kingdom and uh, and Lorien for, for many, many years. There was open trade between the two and visitors would pass back and forth. That stopped around the year 1000, about 2000 years in the past, which is when the... the Shadow returned to Dol Guldur and, and began to extend his power out across Mirkwood, and Mirkwood became dangerous to travel in. Thus, Thranduil's kingdom kind of collapsed back in on itself and became the insular kingdom that we know it to be now, or I suppose at this point slightly less insular than it was when the Necromancer was still at Dol Guldur. So we can be fairly confident that Legolas is at most 2,000 years old, which interestingly makes him by far the youngest elf that we meet in The Lord of the Rings. He is he is the baby of the elven community here in The Lord of the Rings. Gandalf is, in one sense, 2,018 years old. It was in the uh, year 1,000 of the Third Age, about 2,000 years ago, that the Istari came into Middle-earth. So that was the point at which the Maya, who was previous, or, or the Maya who would become known as Gandalf, the, the immortal kind of pseudo or sub-angelic spirit, that, that was Gandalf, was kind of incarnated into the body of the wizard that we all know so well. That was when he came into Middle-earth. Prior to that, though, we have no idea how old Gandalf is, because he came into the world at the moment of its creation, as all the Maiar did. Now, we know that the world has existed for ballpark 40,000 years, something like 38,000 years. We know that the the first age lasted a, a good long time. We know that the second age lasted about three and a half thousand years. The third age has lasted 3,000 years so far. So we know that he has been here for all that time, but there are uncounted years before that. There was really no concept of time before that. So we have no idea how old Gandalf's awareness is, though also we don't know what that that process of incarnation, as it were, did to Gandalf. We don't know how much he remembers of his his pre-Gandalf existence back in, in Valinor. So that gives us a rough sense of the ages of our party as we're ready to, to move in, because there were some questions about Boromir being extremely useful. Um, and though he is vibrant, as I say, he is in the, the kind of the, the, the fullest rush of his, his adult maturity. He isn't a child. He isn't, you know, the, the human version of Pippin kind of strolling around. That is not an excuse for Boromir's kind of arrogance, if we want to call it arrogance, his, his overconfidence, at least. Uh, that doesn't seem to be a valid excuse. He is a, a fully mature man as we move into this. So that gives us a sense of where we are. Good. I'm so glad you guys are all here. We've got we've got Skipa. So Skipa says, so aside from Mary, Pippin, and Legolas, it's a midlife crisis brigade? I mean, pretty much. Yeah, you could probably excuse Gandalf too, I suppose, from that. But yeah, we're, we're kind of all pretty much in that same, you know, that same kind of span. It's a good time to go adventuring, I think, is what we've learned here. Um, good. Good. Okay. Let's, uh, yes, yes. As, as, uh, gosh, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Museon art. Uh, Numenorians are like the legendary kings of Mesopotamia who supposedly ruled for hundreds of years. Yes, absolutely. 
That, that's right. And Angela asks, Legolas is young for an elf. Legolas is a baby, uh, you know, compared to the other elves of, of his company and experience. But uh, still, you know, significantly older than all the other members of the Fellowship. Elves just live and live and live. That's what they do. With all of that said, then, let's get into our uh, reading for this week. And we're going to begin with Sam taking watch with Aragorn and us seeing birds in the sky. It was Sam's turn that day to take the first watch, but Aragorn joined him. The others fell asleep. Then the silence grew until even Sam felt it. The breathing of the sleepers could be plainly heard. The swish of the pony's tail and the occasional movements of his feet became loud noises. Sam could hear his own joints creaking if he stirred. Dead silence was around him, and over all hung a clear blue sky as the sun rode up from the east. Away in the south a dark patch appeared, and grew, and drew north like flying smoke in the wind. "'What's that, Strader? It don't look like a cloud,' said Sam in a whisper to Aragorn. He made no answer. He was gazing intently at the sky, but before long Sam could see for himself what was approaching. Flocks of birds flying at great speed were wheeling and circling and traversing all the land as if they were searching for something, and they were steadily drawing nearer. "'Life flat and still,' hissed Aragorn, pulling Sam down to the shade of a holly bush, for a whole regiment of birds had broken away suddenly from the main host and came flying low straight toward the ridge.' Sam thought they were a kind of crow of large size. As they passed overhead in so dense a throng that their shadow followed them darkly over the ground below, one harsh croak was heard. Not until they had dwindled into the distance north and west, and the sky was again clear, would Aragorn rise. Then he sprang up and went and wakened Gandalf. So, two striking things. Of course, the presence of birds, the spies of Sauron here, but much more importantly, arguably... The presence of the silence, the oppression that heralds this coming of darkness, figurative and literal, the casting of the shadow. Angela's calling out the Hollybush flashback of American gods. Hollybushes throughout this region of Eregion are, are very common. We'll see later that this this uh, this part of the world is referred to as Holland, which is short for Hollandland, that is land of, of holly, that this is a, a sacred thing. Yes. Uh, Shane is calling out here in the YouTube chat, hundreds of birds and one croak. So creepy. It's really powerful that the silence accompanies the coming of the birds. That clues us in to believe that this is not a natural phenomenon, that this isn't some flight of birds from danger into safety. This is something else entirely. These birds have not been displaced. This is not a, a natural flight. This is something else entirely. And Sauron's shadow, as represented here literally by the shadows of the birds, is accompanied by this oppressive silence, and that oppressive silence gives the sense of purpose. And we note that the silence comes before the birds. It's kind of reminiscent of that that <laughs> that literal chilling effect that accompanies the Nazgul. You know, the presence of evil here are are uh, the presence of evil here is palpable, absolutely powerful. Yeah. Sam is having quite the tippy headron moment here, it says Merging Puppy. Yes, luckily they just pass overhead with one ominous croak and don't give us the, uh, the outright assault that we might expect from, you know, Hitchcock. Yes. As Heroes and Bard says, too, birds will make the best, sub the best spies, plus they're an omen of misfortune and death in some cultures. Yes, the idea of crows in particular, large crows coming over in a flock, yes, that absolutely bespeaks this, this sense of, of the omen of death. That's great. Good. Good. Eric asks, are the birds just bad birds or made by Saruman? Um, well, 
uh, not by not by Saruman here, but by by Sauron. Um, this is part, I think, of the corruptive influence, right? This is similar to the corruption of Mirkwood or the utter desolation of, of Mordor, or now that I think of it, the desolation of Smaug too. Evil turns nature to its own purpose. And I think that it is um, entirely possible that these are just the resident birds of Mordor who have been so suffused with the shadow that they themselves have become agents of Sauron. Yeah, they're being, they're being sent out. Robert asks, you learn something from Radagast after all? That would be interesting, wouldn't it? Perhaps that's a, a very specific skill set. Yes, I like that. I like that a lot. So that is our introduction to this, this notion of birds and more significantly our notion of the natural world being subverted into the service of Sauron, which isn't really something that we've seen in the frame of the Lord of the Rings. Of course, we're, we're familiar with Mirkwood. We're familiar with what can happen when the shadow falls upon the natural world. But so far, curiously, in the Lord of the Rings, we've kind of rejected that idea. We, we've incarnated the presence of the shadow into the Black Riders, into the Nazgul. And the other encounters that we've had have very clearly and very purposefully been different. One of the things that Tolkien is striving to do in this part of the book, and, and really throughout the Fellowship, is kind of establish the presence of forces in the world that are not Sauron, or even specifically, you know, Sauron adjacent, not, not under the influence of the shadow, but are still somewhat somewhat contrary to elves and men and dwarves. There are forces in the world which we would consider evil or cruel, which is going to be a very appropriate word in just a, a few slides time, but which aren't a function of the shadow. They're not evil in that capital E Sauron sense. They're evil in the, from our perspective, they don't care about us at all and they are extremely powerful and sometimes mad at us and that makes them tremendously dangerous. And of course, what I'm throwing forward to here is Karathras and what I'm throwing back to here is the old forest, you know? We've had a sense of the natural world rising in antipathy to the presence of hobbits specifically, but of course, all the, uh, all the, the civilized races, if you like, of, of Middle-earth. We're going to continue to see that develop. And this does, of course, echo not just Mirkwood in The Hobbit, but also our entire discussion of the West and the Wild. The idea that the Wild has a presence and an agency all its own. You know, we kind of talked about this with regard to the Eagles, that the Eagles in The Hobbit save Bilbo and the others, but they don't do it out of any kind of sense of heroism. They do it because they like hunting goblins. They do it because goblins are just a shade worse than dwarves and men and hobbits. You know, that, that's why they take the action that they take. It's not about good and bad necessarily, not in the sense that, that we would understand it from the perspective, at least of the hobbits, but it's more about, you know, the, the civil and the savage. It's more about, you know, the, the, the settled lands of the West and the wild of the East. And of course... This flock of birds, these flocks of birds that are searching the Western lands now have come from somewhere. It's no coincidence that they're coming up out of the south, that they are, are pushing north into civilized lands. I always wonder when I read this passage whether one of these flocks of crows will make it as far as the Shire and quite what, you know, the gaffer would make of that all, quite what, what the, uh, the residents there would do it. Um, Heroes and Bard says, nature isn't inherently good or evil, just apathetic then. Neither good nor evil in the, yeah, capital G, good, capital E, evil sense of things. Um, but nature is also not strictly apathetic. I mean, the old forest takes a pretty good swing at our heroes, you know, at, at the hobbits as they're traveling through. And of course, that takes 
two forms. There is the old forest itself, the kind of gestalt entity that is the old forest, which is manipulating the paths and kind of leading them forward and and and, and leading them into the, the Withywindle Valley and all the way to Old Man Willow and then ultimately to Old Man Willow himself, who seems to be more embodied, more conscious, more sentient, whatever that might mean. But there is a force in the old forest that does not care for hobbits specifically, and that arises out of, at least in part, we should say, we, let's, let's not paint with too broad a brush here, but that arises at least in part from the old antagonism between the hobbits and the old forest, right? We burned back the old forest to make Buckland, then we erected the hedge. When the trees encroached upon the hedge, we turned to the bonfire glade. We, we just set fire to this forest as a means of controlling it. So it is no surprise that the old forest is somewhat... Finds itself somewhat in conflict with hobbits. And, you know, we'll talk about Carathras as we get there. But we're already introducing the idea of Carathras before we're even there by calling out the, the kind of non-natural uh, presence of elements of the wild here. This is specifically, explicitly, the shadow that is doing this. These are natural beings that have been, natural creatures that have been turned into spies for the shadow, spies for Sauron. Um, and that is a very different thing. So this is priming us when we get to Carathras to view Carathras perhaps with fear and skepticism. And we're going to have a conversation, in fact, about, uh, you know, is this the presence of the enemy? And the answer is no. This is the presence of Carathras. This is Carathras the Cruel. So we're already kind of framing this before we get there. Yeah. Good. Um, yes, Alan Arnedo says, uh, the wild with a capital W, it makes it seem like nature has a singular consciousness and or goal. Um, I think nature in Tolkien, hmm, nature kind of does have a goal and it is the perpetuation of nature right? Um, the old forest and Carathras and Fangorn Forest and Mirkwood, to a certain extent, just want to be. Their status quo is a natural status quo, and they reject the imposition of civilization and development and industry upon them, you know? And, and Tolkien is, of course, very skeptical of, of that imposition specifically. You know, we celebrate the hobbits because they have this close-to-the-earth agrarian lifestyle, but we outright, you know, demonize Saruman uh, properly and, and justly and rightly. We demonize Saruman because he has corrupted the natural world in the name of industry specifically, just as we did back in The Hobbit with the, the opposition between the goblins and the dwarves, where the dwarves are makers of things and, 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 you know, craftsmen, and so are the goblins. But the goblin industry is different, and it is darker, and it is turned most often to weapons. The foulest application of industry, the foulest application of craft in Tolkien's worldview, was the construction of weapons, you know? And, and when we say weapons, we're not even necessarily talking about the crafting of, of swords or bows or arrows, you know? We're talking about the crafting of explosives. We're talking about the crafting of indiscriminate weaponry. That's a very different thing. Good. All right, let's, uh, let's move on and get to Carathras because as we try to climb, we get snow. Laboriously, they climbed a sharp slope and halted for a moment at the top. Frodo felt a soft touch on his face. He put out his arm and saw the dim white flakes of snow settling on his sleeve. They went on, but before long the snow was falling fast, filling all the air and swirling into Frodo's eyes. The dark, bent shapes of Gandalf and Aragorn only a pace or two ahead could hardly be seen. I don't like this at all, panted Sam just behind. Snow's all right in a fine morning, but I like to be in bed while it's falling. I wish this lot would go off to Hobbit and folk might welcome it there. 
Except on the high moors of the North Farthing, a heavy fall was rare in the Shire and was regarded as a pleasant event and a chance for fun. No living hobbit, save Bilbo, could remember the fell winter of 1311 when white wolves invaded the Shire over the frozen brandywine. Gandalf halted. Snow was thick on his hood and shoulders. It was already ankle-deep about, bo- uh, about his boots. This is what I feared, he said. What do you say now, Aragorn? That I feared it too, Aragorn answered, but less than other things. I knew the risk of snow, though it seldom falls heavily so far south, save high up in the mountains. But we are not high yet. We are still far down, where the paths are usually open all the winter. I wonder if this is a contrivance of the enemy, said Boromir. They say in my land that he can cover the storms in the mountains of shadow that stand upon the borders of Mordor. He has strange powers and many allies. His arm has grown long indeed, said Gimli. If he can draw snow down here from the north to trouble us, to, to trouble us here three hundred leagues away. His arm has grown long, said Gandalf. This brilliant ongoing discussion here between Aragorn and Boromir in particular, it's its really strong characterization, it's really strong focus, and it allows us to do something that Tolkien gets to do all too infrequently, which is open up these different avenues and these different perspectives in the span of a, of, of a single scene. Here we get Boromir's proposed explanation and Aragorn's proposed defense and Gimli's challenge to that and Gandalf's much softer, much quieter, much more dispiriting response. His arm has grown long indeed, says Gimli. If he can draw snow down from the north to trouble us here 300 leagues away, his arm has grown long, said Gandalf. 300 leagues, by the way, 900 miles. A league is a, uh archaic English uh, unit of distance. Uh, basically, each league is three miles. A league was taken to be the distance that a person could walk in an hour, which works out to be about uh, about that far, yes. Jackie Boatman says the shadow is reaching further and further from Mordor, and Heroes and Bards confirms, well, that's ominous. Fair. Absolutely fair. And Alan says, so based on this, can we assume that Sauron knows where the Fellowship is and therefore the ring? Well, no. I don't think that we can because I don't think this is Sauron. The birds are searching and they're searching the entire land west. And presumably by now, given that the Fellowship or the the kind of pre-Fellowship collection of individuals lingered at Rivendell for three months, remember, it is entirely possible by now that Sauron has had some word from the Nazgul of what has happened. They know that the Ringbearer was there. They know that the Ringbearer made it to Rivendell. That's probably all that Sauron knows. So I think you're absolutely right, Alan, with, with your challenge here. Probably not Sauron doing this on Carathras because he couldn't know with this specificity where they were or what they were planning. Presumably, he doesn't even know that they, you know, are, are still on the western edge of the mountains or that they're not, you know, racing down to the Gap of Rohan or not racing even further south and trying to take a different tack. This is, for me at least, one of the, the strongest indications that this is Carathras here. So let's talk a little. Uh, actually, let's do one more slide and then we'll talk a little more about Carathras. You can make us a fire if you can, answered Gandalf. If there are any watchers that can endure this storm, then they can see us, fire or no. But though they had brought wood and kindling by the... Uh, Excuse me, but though they had brought wood and kindlings by the advice of Boromir, it passed the skill of elf or even dwarf to strike a flame that would hold amid the swirling wind or catch in the wet fuel. At last, reluctantly, Gandalf himself took a hand. Picking up a faggot, he held it aloft for a moment, and then with a word of command, Naur and Edraeth, amen, he thrust the end of his staff into the midst of it. At once a great spout of green and blue flame sprang out, and the wood flared and sputtered. 
If there are any to see, then I am at le- then at- I at least am revealed to them, he said. I have written Gandalf is here in signs that all can read from Rivendell to the mouths of the Anduin. But the company no longer cared for watchers or unfriendly eyes. Their hearts were rejoiced to see the light of the fire. The wood burned merrily, and though all round it snow hissed and pools of slush crept under their feet, they warmed their hands gladly at the blaze. There they stood, stooping in a circle round the little dancing and blowing flames. A red light was on their tired and anxious faces. Behind them the night was like a black wall, but the wood was burning fast, and the snow still fell. I love the uh, the opposition there of, of a kind of hopefulness that presented to us as it is, is, is metaphorical for a much more dire situation. And then the turn into kind of final ominous oppression uh, there right at the end of the, of the paragraph. The, the, what I'm referring to here is the wood burned merrily and the wall all around it snow hissed and pools of slush crept under their feet. They warmed their hands gladly at the blaze. Okay, so this is a joyous scene, okay? Gandalf has started the fire with his with his word of command. This is actually just, uh, this is Sindarin. What, what he says is just uh, Elvish and the translation is simply fire be for the saving of us. It isn't a spell as much as it is literally uh, with a word of command, as it says, you know, it, it's not uh, an arcane, you know, Harry Potter-esque crafting of, of full Latin into a magical effect. He is simply speaking the command that causes the thing to happen. And as he says, there are now consequences to that. He has revealed his position to those who are magically inclined. So we're gathered round the blaze, and this is a hopeful moment. They warmed their hands gladly at the blaze. Now we're not so afraid of the snow. This is a moment of light and life and happiness. There they stood, stooping in a circle around the little dancing and blowing flames. A red light was on their tired and anxious faces. Behind them the night was like a black wall. And I can't be the only one who's reminded of that discussion about Frodo's journey, you know, with danger behind and danger ahead. He's caught between and the red light, of course, that we've already associated with Sauron and with Barad-dûr. And, and because we're talking about the crack of doom, too, you know, we're talking about the final fate of the ring. The red light is enormously ominous. So here they are clustered around this red light with the black wall of night behind them. And that has an ominous aspect to it, even before we get to the final line but the wood was burning fast and the snow still fell. Jackie says, that ring comes in handy here, right, Gandalf? Yeah, pr- pretty pretty good. Pretty good for uh, for Gandalf to be carrying the ring of fire right now. It certainly is. Um, this is good. Eric says, magic does take the form of power in the words themselves in Tolkien's works. Yes, you're absolutely right. And, and Museon Art, please let me know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I have, I have really no idea. Uh, Museon Art says, words equals Tolkien magic. Yes, absolutely right. This is the kind of spellcasting that we see in, in uh, Tolkien's works. It is the speaking of names of power. It is the speaking of, of words of command. There aren't arcane spells. There aren't secret words that you need to say in order to channel your spell. You don't need a wand, you don't need a staff, you just need this force of will. That seems to be what what causes this to happen, which is one of two interesting associations. Uh, It's one of two reasons why I feel inclined to mention the uh, David Eddings Belgariad series this evening, because uh, that's one of the ways in which sorcery works in in that fantasy series. It's it's a very good fantasy series. I'm a big fan of the works of of David Eddings, particularly the Belgariad and the Malorian. It's a 10-book stretch between the two series, but uh, really pretty strong. Oftentimes, 
very slow. Oftentimes it takes a long time to, to get places. A lot of traveling montages in, in the Belgariad and in the Malorian, but I really enjoy those books. And one of the reasons that I will bring, I will bring those series up tonight uh, is that connection between kind of words of command as we see in Tolkien's, you know, uh, in Tolkien's Legendarium and the way that sorcery works in the Belgariad, which is, is actually really good. Um, Good, good. Oh, and of course, uh, one important note here that we should call out because we're going to get very few chances to do this, but yay Boromir. Boromir is the one who says that they should bring wood and kindling. And he's absolutely right. So credit to Boromir. That's one point, one little chalk mark on the tally board for Boromir here. Good. Uh, let's move on then to the ill will of Karathras and our final discussion of, of what it is that is happening to them. Ah, it is as I said, growled Gimli. It is no ordinary storm. It is the ill will of Carathras. He does not love elves and dwarves, and that drift was late to cut off our escape. But happily, your Carathras has forgotten that you have men with you, said Boromir, who came up at that moment, and doughty men too, if I may say it. The lesser men with spades may have served you better. Still, we have thrust a lane through the drift, and for all here may be grateful who cannot run as light, and for that all here may be grateful who cannot run as light as elves. But how are we going to get down there, even if you've cut through the drift, said Pippin, voicing the thought of all the hobbits. Have hope, said Boromir. I am weary, but I still have some strength left, and Aragorn too. We will bear the little folk. The others, no doubt, will make shift to tread the path behind us. Come, Master Peregrine, I will begin with you. He lifted up the hobbit. Cling to my back, I shall need my arms, he said, and strode forward. Aragorn with Mary came behind. Pippin marveled at his strength, seeing the passage that he had already forced with no other tool than his great limbs. Even now, burdened as he was, he was widening the track for those who followed, thrusting the snow aside as he went. Hey, you guys. Boromir's all right. Boromir's pretty good. Boromir even has a moment of humility, which is surprising. I mean, yes, yes, he describes himself as doughty, and doughty men too, if I may say it. The lesser men with spades may have served you better. Yes, you have Boromir, son of Denethor of Gondor. I am the force that holds back the might of Mordor just with my iron will and skill at arms. But, you know, if you'd had five guys from Bree with spades, you probably would have been better off. This is a moment of incredibly charming humility for Boromir. I, I desperately love this moment. Uh, and another point heavily in his favor. So what is Gimli saying? It is as I said, growled Gimli. It, is no, it was no ordinary storm. It is the ill will of Carathras. He does not love elves and dwarves. What is Carathras? Yes, a few more points for Team Boromir, says Merging Puppy. Yes. I'm Boromir. I'm amazing. But you really needed a shovel, says Skipa, which is pretty fair. Yeah, pretty fair. Oh, and Angela's calling out Legolas showing off by walking over the snow. I love that moment too. Yes, very, very good. Um... So what is Carathras? What are we to make of Carathras? And what are we to make of the parallel between Carathras and the kind of equivalent scene, the, the, the same similar structure that we saw back in The Hobbit? For those of you who didn't read The Hobbit as a part of There and Back Again and perhaps don't remember this sequence, when the dwarves are trying to cross the Misty Mountains to make it all the way to the Lonely Mountain far in the east, they encounter first... Stone giants who are throwing boulders at each other across the, across the chasm. Then when they take shelter in a cave, they are abducted by the goblins and taken down, down to goblin town. And we're kind of getting a similar structure here. And some of the details are moved around. For the dwarves and Bilbo, it went 
stone giant mountain storm, probably a metaphor, not actually literally giants. See my earlier discussion of that chapter for my thoughts on that. Then the abduction by the goblins and the taking down into a subterranean, you know, uh, a subterranean layer. And then when they escape, they run into the wargs. And there is a certain amount of, of fire and flight there out of the frying pan and into the fire. In fact, it's the title of that chapter. Here we get the encounter with the mountain, the storm, the, the crashing of boulders, the snow, everything that, that happens to them on Carathras. Then we get the wargs, and then we get the transit into the subterranean space. So we're kind of echoing the spirit and the structure of The Hobbit here. And that's the other reason that I wanted to bring up the Belgariad tonight. The kind of high-level concept for the Belgariad is that it is a fantasy world in which the same sequence of events plays out again and again and again generations apart, sometimes hundreds of years apart, the same kind of things happen again and again, resulting in the same kind of fundamental conflicts. And that is purposeful. That is part of like the metaphysics of that universe. And when you get into the second, se uh, the second series, the Malorian, that is actually kind of crucial, in fact, to, to the unfolding plot. And that's a really great idea. That's the high-level idea that David Eddings had going into writing the Belgariad. He, he really wanted to explore that kind of, of, of concept and does so really rather well. But this is a very similar kind of setup here for, for Tolkien without that similar metaphysical framework, or, and this is my open question, are we in fact dealing with a similar metaphysical framework? Is there a reason that the journey of the Fellowship is so similar to the journey of the company of the dwarves, of, of Thorin's company, Bilbo and company? Well, on the one hand, it's tempting to say yes. It's tempting to say yes for kind of textual and geographical reasons for reasons of world building that that we have two parties kind of going roughly in the same direction kind of encountering roughly the same things it makes a certain amount of sense that they would encounter similar challenges right but there's also a sense in which this is the arc of a hero's journey in in middle earth in in the frame of tolkien's secondary creation and we talked a very little bit right at the end of bilbo's journey when bilbo is returning home as, as he's in the and back again phase of his journey we talked a little about how the opposition of the hill on the one hand and the mountain on the other kind of bracketed his experience and in a sense bracketed all experience that he starts off in the absolutely prosaic coziness of Bag End and ends up in the epic magnitude of the Lonely Mountain and the battle with Smaug and, and ultimately the slaying of Smaug and it doesn't get more mythic than that and then the battle of five armies and everything that flows forth from that and, and grand heroism and selflessness and destruction and all of this huge stuff and then he travels back again. Is this part of the threshold experience of that journey? Is this part of what the Misty Mountains represent, not kind of geographically, but metaphorically? We, I was just talking earlier about the passage from the West into the wild, and those two things are, are demarcated by the Misty Mountains. That's absolutely explicit in The Hobbit, less explicit in the pages of The Lord of the Rings, and it's going to become more complicated within the frame of The Lord of the Rings too, though even that complication may well be read as being conscious that neither the West nor the Wild are as simple as they appeared from Bilbo's perspective back in The Hobbit. This is something that I want to pay attention to as we move onward, because there are a few other points where we're dealing with similar kind of structural elements to Bilbo's journey back in The Hobbit, and, and I want to kind of be aware of those. Um, 
Let me see here. Ah, Danielle Ross says the world started in music, so reprises were probably going to be a thing. I like that a lot. That's very good. <laughs> uh, Alan says, I feel like Karatsu was trying to get rid of the fellowship is like when you have a bug on you and you try to blow it off. Yes, I like that too. I like that very much. Um, good, good. Oh, like BSG, says Angela. Yes, actually, yes. Not dissimilar to BSG. Good, good. So let's um, take a look here at... Uh, at uh, what Carothrus is in itself. As, as I said earlier, I, I read Carothrus as being very similar to the old forest. That is to say that it is an entity that has existed since the world was created and has gained an awareness and a kind of consciousness and an ability to control its environment in exactly the same way as the old forest could, you know, move the paths through the forest and, and lead the hobbits exactly where it singular the forest possibly wanted it wanted them to be led so Carathras can summon forth the storm so Carathras can hurl the boulders and this to me is a much more successful kind of metaphorical recapitulation of the stone giants as i said back when we were discussing the hobbits i don't think there were stone giants i think my kind of um my interpretive theory here is that Frodo witnessed something, uh, that Bilbo, excuse me, witnessed something very similar to the attack of Carathras on the Fellowship. That is to say, inexplicable boulders being hurled and storms whistling up out of nowhere. And he imaginatively and mythically credited that to stone giants. I don't think they were literally true, particularly by the time that we get here, particularly by the time that we get to the frame of the Lord of the Rings. There just isn't an accounting of, of giant, immense stone giants living in, in, um, living in the Misty Mountains. No one ever mentions them, which is surprising because they would be a significant force if, if, they, were, uh, if they were present here, either for the West or the Wild. Yeah. Okay. I'm taking too long talking about this stuff and we must push on. So that is the will of Carathras. I suppose one other quick little thing. Is Carathras more than just a nature spirit? Or I don't like nature spirit as a phrase. Is Carathras more than just the spirit of nature? Is Carathras more than just the spirit of the mountain? Is Carathras some kind of, of, of greater force? Is Carathras, for example, of the Maiar? Is Carathras a disembodied angelic spirit that came into the world in perhaps the way that Tom Bombadil did? Is that the connection that we should be drawing here? Tom Bombadil has retreated from the world but preserves his little, uh, his little uh, corner of the old forest. Is Carathras something different? Possibly not. The, the, the fact that's most important here, I think, is, is the disassociation of Carathras's malevolence his cruelty, his explicit cruelty with the shadow and the influence of the shadow. We're doing something very different here, and that's important. Is Carathras like Old Man Willow, says Skipa? Possibly, possibly, yes. I mean, except that, yes. I mean, in, in the broadest sense, in one possible way, yes. I mean, it could just be that certain beings... Beings, is that too strong a word for a tree and a geographical feature? Um, certain things have an awareness, have sentience. Yeah, it's, it's possible. All right, we really must push on with our last slide from this chapter as Gandalf shouts at a mountain. Enough, enough, cried Gimli. We are departing as quickly as we may. And indeed, with that last stroke of malice, the, with the, that last stroke, the malice of the mountain seemed to be expended as if Carothrus was satisfied that the invaders had been beaten off and would not dare to return. The thread of snow lifted. The clouds began to break and the light grew broader. 
As Legolas had reported, they found that the snow became steadily more shallow as they went down, so that even the hobbits could trudge along. Soon they all stood once more on the flat shelf at the head of the steep slope where they had felt the first flakes of snow the night before. The morning was now far advanced. From the high place they looked back westward over the lower lands. Far away in the tumble of country that lay at the foot of the mountain was the dell from which they had started to climb the pass. Frodo's legs ached. He was chilled to the bone and hungry, and his head was dizzy as he thought of the long and painful march downhill. Black specks swam before his eyes. He rubbed them, but the black specks remained. In the distance below him, but still high above the lower foothills, dark dots were circling in the air. The birds again, said Aragorn, pointing down. That cannot be helped now, said Gandalf. Whether they are good or evil or have nothing to do with us at all, we must go down at once. Not even on the knees of Carathras will we wait for another nightfall. A cold wind flowed down behind them, and they turned their backs on the Redhorn Gate and stumbled wearily down the slope. Carathras had defeated them. It's pretty great. It's a pretty great setup here. That Carathras has rebuffed their attempts to pass through the Redhorn Gate, and now they have to find an alternate route, and we're already kind of leaning on this idea that that Carathras has been mollified, you know, and we'll get to that too later. Cover's blown, push on, says Jackie Boatman. Good. Becca Eller says, I don't enjoy the snow parts. Having walked through waist-high snowdrifts, I feel very deep sympathy for these poor fellows. It is really, really grim. Yes, good. But it has to be grim because we need to motivate the next turn of the plot as we move into chapter four and consider, what now? It was evening, and the gray light was again waning fast when they halted for the night. They were very weary. The mountains were veiled in the deepening dusk and the wind was cold. Gandalf spared them one more mouthful each of the Miravor of, Reven- of Rivendell. When they had eaten some food, he called a council. We cannot, of course, go on again tonight, he said. The attack on the Red Horn Gate has tied us out, and we must rest here for a while. And then where are we to go? asked Frodo. We still have our journey and our errand before us, answered Gandalf. We have no choice but to go on or to return to Rivendell. Pippin's face brightened visibly at the mere mention of return to Rivendell. Merry and Sam looked up, hopefully but Aragorn and Boromir made no sign. Frodo looked troubled. I wish I was back there, he said. But how can I return without shame, unless there is indeed no other way and we are already defeated? You are right, Frodo, said Gandalf. To go back is to admit defeat and face worse defeat to come. If we go back now, then the ring must remain there. We shall not be able to set out again. Then, sooner or later, Rivendell will be besieged, and after a brief and bitter time, it will be destroyed. The ringwraiths are deadly enemies, but they are only shadows yet of the power and terror they would possess if the ruling ring were on their master's hand again. Then we must go on if there is a way, said Frodo with a sigh. Sam sank back into gloom. So we can't go back. We must go on, though the gate before us is closed. I like the ambiguity in Gandalf's first line there. We cannot, of course, go on again tonight. The attack on the Redhorn Gate has tired us out, and we must rest here for a while. The attack on the Redhorn Gate. That implies to me he is referring to the Fellowship's assault on Carathras itself, that they attacked Carathras by trying to climb it. The attack on the Redhorn Gate has tired us out. Otherwise, it would be the attack at or beneath the Redhorn Gate, but on implies that that motive force forward. Why could they not set out again if they return to Rivendell, says Glorfin David, and that is a great question. The answer seems to be the darkening shadow, 
Now the birds are present. If they fly back to Rivendell, if they, if they, I'm using the archaic form there, if they flee back to Rivendell, they will be seen. They probably have been seen already. And that means that Sauron will know where they are. And that means that a siege of Rivendell will be priority number one. And he is going to have no trouble bringing forces down out of the Misty Mountains, even bringing forces up from Mordor in sufficient quantities to absolutely crush Rivendell. Gandalf has no reason to downplay Riven's strength and uh, Rivendell's strength and security, but as he says, Rivendell will be besieged, and after a brief and bitter time, it will be destroyed. There's no plan B here. There is just valiant hope. If we go back, Sauron gets the ring. If we stay here, Sauron gets the ring. The only hope is to push on forward. Yeah. Good. So we're going to turn to Moria, which is on the next slide, <laughs> as we discuss the possibilities here. Um, Since our open attempt on the mountain pass, our plight has become more desperate, I fear. I see now little hope if we do not soon vanish from sight for a while and cover our trail. Therefore, I advise that we should go neither over the mountains nor round them, but under them. That is a road at any rate that the enemy will least expect us to take. We do not know what he expects, said Boromir. He may watch all roads, likely and unlikely. In that case, to enter Moria would be to walk into a trap, hardly better than knocking on the gates of the Dark Tower itself. The name of Moria is Black. You speak of what you do not know when you liken Moria to the stronghold of Sauron, answered Gandalf. I alone of you have ever been in the dungeons of the Dark Lord, and only in his older and lesser dwelling in Dol Guldur. Those who pass the gates of Barador do not return. But I would not lead you into Moria if there were no hope of coming out again. If there are orcs there, it may prove ill for us, that is true. But most of the orcs of the Misty Mountains were scattered or destroyed in the Battle of Five Armies. The eagles report that orcs are gathering again from afar, but there is a hope that Moria is still free. There is even a chance that the dwarves are there, and that in some deep hall of his father's, Balin, son of Fundin, may be found. However it may prove, one must tread the path that, needs, that need chooses." I will tread the path with you, Gandalf, said Gimli. I will go and look on the halls of Durin, whatever may wait there, if you can find the doors that are shut. Good, Gimli, said Gandalf. You encourage me. We will seek the hidden doors together, and we will come through. In the ruins of the dwarves, a dwarf's head will be less likely to bewilder than elves or men or hobbits. And it will not be the first time that I have been, that I have been to Moria. I sought there long for Thryan, son of Thror, after he was lost. I passed through, and I came out again alive. I, too, once passed the Dimwell Gate, said Aragorn quietly. But though I also came out again, the memory is very evil. I do not wish to enter Moria a second time. Glorfinn David calls out the pun here, Black Moria. Very good. The name of Moria is Black, says Boromir. Yup. In Sindarin, Moria means Black Chasm. It means Black hit. So he's either making an elvish pun there, or that is a little bit of, of accidental wordplay. Jackie says, that makes it sound like Aragorn's never been past the Black Gate, but I guess Barador isn't Morana. No, Aragorn has not been past the Black Gate, it would seem. Um, or at least not, hmm, I suppose not through the Black Gate. That might be the, uh, the, the, the better way of putting that. Uh, but curiously, here we discover a fascinating uh, detail of Aragorn's earlier life. I too once passed the Dimril Gate, said Aragorn quietly, but though I also came out again, the memory is very evil. I do not wish to enter Moria a second time. We have no idea when Aragorn was in Moria. Now, he does say here that uh, 
He passed the Dimrel Gate and came out again. And it is clear by the time that we get to to the Western Gate, to Durin's Gate, which we'll get to later in this chapter, that he has never seen it before, that he has no idea about it. He doesn't seem in any way familiar with the Western reaches of Moria. So it seems as though he plunged in from the east and then turned around and came back out again. We don't know why or when that happened. There's really uh, no information anywhere in, in Tolkien's Legendarium that, that suggests when this would happen. Um, so it, it's, it's possible that it was... Um, no, I guess it isn't even possible that he was tracking Gollum because Gollum hadn't made it into Moria then. Yeah. I don't know. I, don't, I, I honestly don't know here. Um, how how and why and when Aragorn was in Moria. But I do like this detail that, you know, Gandalf has been in, he was searching for Thryon in, in uh, the days after the fall of Erebor and, you know, he has survived, that, that he has been to Dol Guldur and has survived. But even then, Barador is something more. It's, it's pretty great. Um, good. Oh, Jackie says, I bet the timeline in the appendix would tell us more about Aragorn's travels if I could be motivated to get up and get my book. Uh, I have mine on the shelf behind me here, but uh, I'm pretty sure that it doesn't actually. I'm pretty sure that it doesn't mention him going into Moria. If there is a reference, I will do a little more research this week, and if there is a reference, then I will I will find it and I will share it. But yeah, it's it's interesting. I guess it could be conceivably part of when he was hunting for Gollum. He may have, have uh, hunting for Gollum on, on Gandalf's instructions. He may have ventured into Moria then, but yeah. So, Moria, the Black Pit, as uh, the, the elves have it. We're going to get there, but before we get there, oh, Becca Eller says, just one more reason we need the adventures of young Aragorn, and I completely concur, yes. Um, Danielle says, it would have to be before Balin went in, otherwise he'd know something was up and how the expedition went. Yes, it has to be before Balin, and we know that that was 30 years ago, so it, it can't be... Um, it can't be after that, so it can't be the hunt for Gollum. You're absolutely right. Uh, I have no idea. Yeah. We'll, we'll dig around. We'll see if we can find something out. There may be something very, very, de- uh, very, very deep there, but uh, we'll, we'll do the best that we can. Before we get to Moria, though, we get the attack of the wargs. The night was old. And westward the waning moon was setting, gleaming fitfully through the breaking clouds. Suddenly Frodo started from sleep. Without warning, a storm of howls broke out fierce and wild all about the camp. A great host of wargs had gathered silently and was now attacking them from every side at once. Fling fuel on the fire, cried Gandalf to the hobbits. Draw your blades and stand back to back. In the leaping light as the fresh wood blazed up, Frodo saw many gray shapes spring over the ring of stones. More and more followed. Through the throat of one huge leader, Aragorn passed his sword with a thrust. With a great sweep, Boromir hewed the head off another. Beside them, Gimli stood with his stout legs apart, wielding his dwarf axe. The bow of Legolas was singing. In the wavering firelight, Gandalf seemed suddenly to grow. He rose up, a great menacing shape like the monument of some ancient king of stone set upon a hill. Stooping like a cloud, he lifted a burning branch and strode to meet the wolves. They gave back before him. High in the air, he tossed the blazing brand. It flared with a sudden white radiance like lightning, and his voice rolled like thunder. Naur adidre thamen, naur dan i nagor, excuse me, ngaroth, he cried. There was a roar and a crackle, and the tree above him burst into a leaf and bloom of blinding flame. The fire leapt from treetop to treetop. The whole hill was crowned with dazzling light. The swords and knives of the defenders shone and flickered. The last arrow of Legolas kindled in the air as it flew and plunged burning into the heart of a great wolf chieftain. All the others fled. So here we have, as I said, something of uh, an echo 
of the encounter with the wargs in The Hobbit, where the dwarves take to the trees and the goblins are threatening to burn the trees with the dwarves in them. Here, though, rather than just igniting pine cones and throwing those, Gandalf takes greater action. Now that he has been revealed, now that he doesn't need to be concerned about the enemy's knowledge of his presence, he can take direct action, which he does by setting fire to everything, basically setting fire to everything, including Legolas's arrow as it passes through the air. Once again, we get this word of command. Once again, we get this this spell, if spell you call it, from Gandalf that just translates into something fairly direct and fairly punchy. The translation here is, fire, save us, fire, drive back the werewolves. And werewolves is a really interesting word in Tolkien's Legendarium um, because <laughs> there are werewolves. We had reference to werewolves back when Gandalf was talking to uh, Frodo about how awful, uh, you know, about how evil Sauron is. We did get some reference to werewolves. Werewolves in Tolkien's Legendarium are not, you know, universal monster werewolves. They do not transform from men into wolves. They are werewolves in the sense that they are sentient and have the power of speech. Werewolves were created by Morgoth ages, ages past the the real big bad, though they were, even when they were created, uh, conceived of by Sauron, who was Morgoth's servant at the time. Um, at that point, Sauron took the form of a great wolf from time to time, which is where he presumably got the, the inspiration there. And it seems probable that the wargs here, as distinct from, you know, regular wolves, that the wargs are descended from those werewolves because they too could speak. And we know that the wargs can speak because of the scene earlier in The Hobbit. So they're either descended from or, or kind of recreated in the image of those earlier werewolves. But as I say, not, not, not transforming werewolves. Didn't were originally translate to strange, says Heroes and Bars? Yes, yes, more in that sense than in the sense of, uh, of, of yes. <laughs> I'm just thinking of Teen Wolf now, basically. Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, it's interesting. Merging Puppy says, I had to reread this part three times because I do not remember this from my first time through. It's an odd little beat because we think of, you know, we ascend Carathras and then plunge into Moria, but we don't. We get this whole fairly extended sequence, in fact, and a fairly dire sequence. This is this is tough. You know, the Fellowship is hard-pressed at this point, though I do love this beat of our heroes working together. I love the uh, the throat of one huge leader, Aragorn, passed his sword with a thrust with a great sweet Boromir, hewed the head off another. Beside them, Gimli stood with his stout legs apart, wielding his dwarf axe, the bow of Legolas was singing. I love how we get this this whole thing here. Yeah, good. All right. That will do it for the warg attack. There is much more there, but uh, unfortunately, time is short. And we get a brief uh, reference here from Gandalf to an ancient opposition here. Well, here we are at last, said Gandalf. Here the elven way from Holin ended. Holly was the token of the people of that land, and they planted it here to mark the end of the domain. For the west door was made chiefly for their use in the traffic with the lords of Moria. Those were happier days, when there was still close friendship at times between folk of different race, even between dwarves and elves. It is not the fault of the dwarves, excuse me, it is not the fault of the dwarves that the friendship waned, said Gimli. I had not heard it was the fault of the elves, said Legolas. I have heard both, said Gandalf, and I will not give judgment now, but I beg you two, Legolas and Gimli, at least to be friends and to help me. I need you both. The doors are shut and hidden, and the sooner we find them, the better. Night is at hand. And since we're talking about echoes from uh, 
from The Hobbit, hey, here we are looking for a hidden dwarven door. Just, you know, another little beat of repetition there in a part of the book that is leaning pretty heavily on that notion of, of repetition, that structural repetition, or perhaps not. Um, so this is Eregion. This is uh, Holin. This is the, the former elven settlement. We had a brief beat of this from Legolas last time where he's talking about how the stones remember them and how Holin is, is kind of preserved and protected. Eregion is, is preserved and protected from the shadow simply because elves once lived here and they don't anymore. Eregion was uh, a really significant uh, elven settlement uh, populated by, by Noldor elves. For a while, Eregion was ruled by Galadriel and by her husband Celeborn before they went to Lorien. So this was very, very serious, but now it is no more. Yeah. Dwarves are apparently really big on secret entrances, says Heroes and Bards. Yeah. Um, yes, good, good. So this is our entry here. Um Eregion also, by the way, uh, Eregion is just the Sindarin translation of Land of Holly. Holin, coming from Holinland, is still the old form. But yes, this is all about the Holly. But we move forward to the description of the doors of Durin. The moon now shone upon the grey face of the rock, but they could see nothing else for a while. Then slowly on the surface where the wizard's hands had passed, faint lines appeared like slender veins of silver running in the stone. At first, there were no more than pale gossamer threads, so fine that they twinkled fitfully when the moon caught them, but steadily they grew broader and clearer until their design could be guessed. At the top, as high as Gandalf could reach, was an arch of interlacing letters in an elvish character. Below, though the threads were in places blurred or broken, the outline could be seen of an anvil and a hammer surmounted by a crown with seven stars. Beneath these again were two trees, each bearing crescent moons. More clearly than all else, there shone forth in the middle of the door a single star with many rays. "'These are the emblems of Durin!' cried Gimli. "'And there is the tree of the High Elves,' said Legolas. "'And the star of the House of Feanor,' said Gandalf. "'They are wrought of Ithildin that mirrors only starlight and moonlight "'and sleeps until it is touched by one who speaks words now long forgotten in Middle-earth. "'It is long since I heard them, and I thought deeply before I could recall them to my mind.' "'What does the writing say?' asked Frodo, who was trying to decipher the inscription on the arch. I thought I knew the elf letters, but I cannot read these. The words are in the elven tongue of the west of Middle-earth in, in the elder days, answered Gandalf, but they do not say anything of importance to us. They say only, the doors of Durin, lord of Moria, speak, friend, and enter. And underneath, small and faint, is written, I, Navi, made them. Celebrimbor of Holland drew these signs. There is... So much here, and I'm going to push past this slide so that I can show you the actual uh, inscription here that we're seeing. So there are so many things that are curious here, so many things that are fascinating here. Um, Moria is particularly in uh, interesting. The, the transcription there, that, that first arc that you see over the top, the doors of Durin, Lord of Moria, speak, friend, and enter. Then beneath that, I, Narvi, made them, Celebrimbor of Holland drew these signs, right? 
Becca Eller asks the excellent question, why are the secret letters on the Dwarven door in Elvish? Because this was the Elven door, if you like. The Western door of Moria was designed to allow traffic and transport with the Elven kingdom of Eregion. So they were much closer than, in much the same way as, you know, Erebor and Dale were, were kind of, and even to a lesser extent, the kingdom of Thranduil of Mirkwood uh, were kind of, of coexistent with one another. So it was between the dwarves of of Khazadum and uh, and the elves of Eregion. There was a great friendship there. This was from long ago. Uh, Narvi, the the I Narvi made them. Celebrimber of Holland drew these signs. So someone constructed the door, and then someone made the inscription. The someone who constructed the door was a dwarf. He, the, the Narvi is a dwarven name. He was. Uh, uh, a very important dwarf, presumably of Kazadum. The second name, though, is perhaps even more interesting. Celebrimbor of Holland drew these signs. Celebrimbor has been mentioned before in There and Back Again because Celebrimbor is an extremely important elf. Uh, in the middle of the Second Age, Celebrimbor of Eregion was approached by uh, an unknown Maya craftsman called Anatar, the Lord of Gifts, um, and basically persuaded to craft rings of power. It turns out that Anatar, the Lord of Gifts, was, of course, the Lord of Lies. It was Sauron in disguise. Celebrimbor, who inscribed this, this image here on the doors wrought by Narvi, is the same Celebrimbor who created the Ring of Power, is the same, well, not the Ring of Power, technically, but created the other Rings of Power. <laughs> Glorfin David notes, Durin's door equals Dumbledore? No, a little, a little different. Just, just ever so slightly different. Old Toby says, if I ever build a house, the front door is totally going to be like Durin's door. I am hard pushed to choose between Durin's door for a front door or just the round green porthole door that Bilbo has back in Bag End. Yeah, one of those two things. Or I guess that the SBs have back in Bag End now. Yeah. Here's and Bart says, Narvi and Celebrimbor were here, I guess. Yeah, a little bit. It, it does read a little bit like that. So this is the door. This is uh, the entry here into Khazadum, the elven entry into Khazadum. We get the uh, hammer and anvil there that you can you can see near the uh, top in the middle. Those are the emblems of Durin. The crown with the seven stars, that represents Durin's crown. We're going to hear a little more about that and, and the, the star crown of Durin in, in just a while. Uh, we get the trees surmounted by the, uh, surmounted by the crescent moons. That gives gives us uh, the two trees, possibly the two trees of the, of, of the high elves, it's possible. And then we get the single star, the, the emblem of, uh, of Feanor's house, yes. Um, on the top left there, we get the, uh, in, in the very top left, we get the C rune, uh, which stands for Celebrimbor, of course. In the top right, we get the Ore, the N rune, which stands for, for Narvi. And uh, beneath their feet is the, uh, right at the bottom there, that is the D rune for Durin. So that is the, uh, the Durin's door here to Khazadum. And it gives us, of course, one of the best kind of riddles, I suppose, that you'll find in modern fantasy literature. It's, it's pretty great. First of all, though, Gandalf has to do his best. What are you going to do then? asked Pippin, undaunted by the wizard's bristling brows. Knock on the doors with your head, Peregrine Took, said Gandalf. But if that does not shatter them, and I am allowed a little peace from foolish questions, I will seek for the opening words. 
I once knew every spell in all the tongues of elves or men or orcs that was ever used for such a purpose. I can still remember ten score of them without searching in my mind, but only a few trials, I think, will be needed, and I shall not have to call on Gimli for words of the secret dwarf tongue that they teach to none. The opening words were elvish, like the writing on the arch. That seems certain. He stepped up to the rock again and lightly touched with his staff the silver star in the middle beneath the sign of the anvil. Anon Etelen, Edro Hyamen, Fenes Nogothrim, Lasto Bethlamen, he said in a commanding voice. The silver lines faded, but the blank grey stone did not stir. Many times he repeated these words in different order or varied them. Then he tried other spells, one after another, speaking now faster and louder, now soft and slow. Then he spoke many single words of elvish speech. Nothing happened. The cliff towered into the night, the countless stars were kindled, the wind blew cold, and the doors stood fast. Again Gandalf approached the wall, and lifting up his arms he spoke in tones of command and rising wrath. Edro! Edro! he cried, and struck the rock with his staff. Open! Open! he shouted, and followed it with the same command in every language that had ever been spoken in the west of Middle-earth. Then he threw his staff on the ground, and sat down in silence. Old Toby points out, Gandalf way overthinks this. Yeah, we're going to get a couple of beats here of uh, of Gandalf being very short with Pippin too, which is uh, not always easy to, to appreciate. Yes. Um, let me see here. Uh, Alan asks, Moria was the first dwarven kingdom, right? Moria was one of the first dwarven kingdoms. Uh, the dwarves were created long ago by the Vala Aule. He uh, created the dwarves because he was impatient for the coming of the children of Iluvatar and wanted to teach someone his craft. He was the, the craftsman blacksmith of the Valar. So he created the dwarves and Iluvatar said, hey, what the hell do you think you're doing? But granted the dwarves life. He granted them fear. He gave them spirits, effectively, uh, nonetheless. And then the seven dwarven fathers were paired up with wives, all except for one, actually, all except for Durin, and they were sent to sleep beneath the mountains until the coming of the children of Iluvatar. So there are seven dwarven kingdoms, of which one was Khazadum, one was Moria. This is, this is Durin's line. Durin was one of the dwarven forefathers created by Ale way back when. Yeah. Um, Danielle says, Gimli just told them the dwarf names for the mountains are proper nouns less secret than the rest of the language. Yeah, I like parsing this. This is really interesting. Only a few trials, I think, will be needed. I shall not have to call on Gimli for words of the secret dwarf tongue that they teach to none. I think the secret dwarf tongue is not dwarfish. I think there is a kind of public dwarfish language that they use, dwarvish language that they use, but there is also perhaps a secret language that the dwarves do not teach to others. That seems possible. Yeah, yeah. That certainly seems to be the implication anyway, yeah. <laughs> Jackie Bowman says, I remember reading this as a kid and thinking, why not just say friend? That's pretty great. Oh, and Eric says, it vaguely reminds me of Snape trying to access the Marauder's map. Good, good. Yes. <laughs> so, of course, we know now the solution. The password is simply melon. Speak, friend, and enter. Gandalf is somewhat to blame for the translation here because the translation should be, you know, closer to say, friend, and enter. But yes. And there is often uh, a lot made of the idea that um, that the Western gate to Khazad-dum is this simple, 
right? That, that it is so transparent, that it is simply a matter of walking up and saying friend in, in Elvish and being allowed in. And that's fair, kind of, but the door itself is concealed. The door itself is hidden. And the, the design that we see upon the door is crafted from Ithildan by, by Celebrimbor. So it is, Ithildan is Sindarin for, uh, for, for moon star or, or star moon as, as Gandalf will, will cite it later. This is the kind of mithril crafted inscription that is, that is on the door. And Gandalf says he has to reveal that by running his hands over it and speaking the words of power. So it is still a very secret entrance, even if the password itself is not so secret or perhaps tough to, uh, less tough to figure out. Becca Eller says they could have put friend in italics just to help a fellow out. They absolutely could. But the opening of the door to Moria is not the end of the fellowship's troubles. Quite the opposite, in fact. It is but the beginning. And this is what happens next. He strode forward and set his foot on the lowest step. But at that moment, several things happened. Frodo felt something seize him by the ankle and he fell with a cry. Bill the pony gave a wild neigh of fear and turned tail and dashed away along the lakeside into the darkness. Sam leapt after him and then hearing Frodo's cry he ran back again, weeping and cursing. The others swung round and saw the waters of the lake seething as if a host of snakes were swimming up from the southern end. Out from the water a long sinuous tentacle had crawled. It was pale green and luminous and wet. Its fingered end had hold of Frodo's foot and was dragging him into the water. Sam on his knees was now slashing at it with a knife. The arm let go of Frodo, and Sam pulled him away, crying out for help. Twenty other arms came rippling out. The dark water boiled, and there was a hideous stench. "'Into the gateway! Up the stairs! Quick!' shouted Gandalf, leaping back. Rousing them from the horror that seemed to have rooted all but Sam to the ground where they stood, he drove them forward. They were just in time." Sam and Frodo were only a few steps up, and Gandalf had just begun to climb when the groping tentacles writhed across the narrow shore and fingered the cliff wall and the doors. One came wriggling over the threshold, glistening in the starlight. Gandalf turned and paused. If he was considering what word would close the gate again from within, there was no need. Many coiling arms seized the doors on either side, and with horrible strength swung them round. With a shattering echo they slammed, and all light was lost." A noise of rending and crashing came dully through the ponderous stone. Sam, clinging to Frodo's arm, collapsed on a step in the black darkness. "'Poor old Bill,' he said in a choking voice. "'Poor old Bill, wolves and snakes. But the snakes were too much for him. I had to choose, Master Frodo. I had to come with you.' Alan points out, "'Fingered end creeps me out, so it's a tentacle with more tentacles on the end of it.' Yes, it's pretty bad. This is the Watcher in the Water. And Cam is asking in the YouTube chat, is this a Kraken? The answer is we don't know. And Robert says in the YouTube chat, that moment when you realize maybe Karathras wasn't so bad after all. Snow doesn't seem so bad after facing the Watcher in the Water. It's true. So what happens here? What is the Watcher in the Water? Well, we have very little information here. We have very little information about uh, which we might use to to forge some speculation. But it does it displays three, I guess, really interesting characteristics. Okay, the first is that it does not strike until the doors are open and the fellowship is moving into Moria. The second is that it then slams shut the gates of Moria behind them. But the third is perhaps the most interesting: it strikes at Frodo. Now, it is fair to say that 
the fellowship is is moving into Moria and is expecting Moria to be trouble. For all they know, Moria is is packed full of orcs and who knows what, and the the nameless evil from deep beneath the earth that the dwarves disturbed that that caused Moria to fall in the first place. They have no idea what they're going to find. So presumably they are arrayed in a defensive position with regard to the door, with regard to, to Durin's door here, which would probably mean that the hobbits would be at the back. Frodo, perhaps, furthest back. Hey, Ringbearer, you stay back from the line of battle just in case something comes at us out of the door that we just opened. So it's possible that the Watcher in the Water struck at Frodo just because he was closest. But on the very next page, Gandalf will wonder if that is true. He will have an unvoiced concern whether or not that is actually true. Yeah. All evil things, says Jackie, will be drawn to Frodo. And I love that explanation. I like that very, very much. Because, well, I suppose there are two connections there, right? The first is something that Frodo is empowered. By virtue of being a ring bearer, Frodo is empowered. He also has, you know, the, the wound of the Morgul blade. He has been further into the wraith world than any member of the Fellowship, possibly any other mortal on, on Earth right now who hasn't been completely, on Arda, who hasn't been completely, you know, wraithified at that point. Frodo may be luminous. He may be radiant in the wraith realm for, the, for those eyes who can perceive such things. So it is possible that the Watcher in the Water is reaching out for Frodo because Frodo is powerful in that sense. It's possible that the Watcher in the Water is reaching out for Frodo because of the presence of the ring, though I'm not entirely sure or convinced by that. It's also possible, more prosaically, that he's reaching out for Frodo simply because Frodo is the closest at that point. It's, uh, it's a really striking moment, and all the more striking because the Watcher pulls the doors to Moria closed. And that's necessary in one sense, because we are going to face things in Khazadum that we don't necessarily want to face. And there may come a point where after a couple of days hanging out on the threshold here, Gandalf might decide, you know what, maybe we should go back out the Western Gate. Maybe that would be the smarter thing to do. But now they can't. Now they are trapped and there is no way out but through. And that is that is just good storytelling. That is that is good narrative right there. And the fact that you can accomplish that kind of, of, of necessary structure through the application of a Lovecraftian nightmare monster, so much the better. Let's do that. We'll push on here. I'm already running so late. Um, this is, uh, as we're moving on through the Mines of Moria, you know what, I'm going to skip this slide. I, I quoted this slide uh, partly just because Aragorn is awesome as he's seeking to reassure the rest of the Fellowship, and I really like the friendship between Gandalf and Gimli. All of that is great. Uh, and because we get another really curious, last time I talked about Tolkien's illusion of depth, right? I talked about uh, the, uh, the throwing out of incidental details that are suggested, that are evocative of a broader and wider and deeper world. We get that here from Aragorn. I'll just read the middle paragraph. Do not be afraid, said Aragorn. There was a pause longer than usual, and Gandalf and Gimli were whispering together. The others were crowded behind, waiting anxiously. Do not be afraid. I have been with him on many a journey, if never on one so dark, and there are tales in Rivendell of greater deeds of his than any I have seen. He will not go astray. If there is any path to find, he has led us here against our fears, but he will lead us out again at whatever cost to himself. He is surer of finding the way home in a blind night than the cats of Queen Baruthiel. Another little moment of Aragorn prophecy there. 
He will lead. He has led us in here against our fears, but he will lead us out again at whatever cost to himself. More on that next week. But that final line, he's surer of finding the way home in a blind night than the cats of Queen Berusiel. We know almost nothing about Queen Berusiel. She was a, uh, a queen back on Numenor. Um, she was described as Tolkien in attendant material as nefarious, solitary, and loveless. She owned 10 cats, which she employed as spies and secret agents. Little echo of Sauron there, sending those, uh, sending those cats out into the night to spy on those. Yeah, as Lynn says, I want to know the cat story. I just told you all of the cat story. That, that's literally everything that we get. There's, there's nothing else there. Yeah. Okay. We'll push on from that one because we definitely want to talk about Pippin. Pippin felt curiously attracted by the well. While the others were unrolling blankets and making beds against the walls of the chamber as far as possible from the hole in the floor, he crept to the edge and peered over. A chill air seemed to strike his face, rising from invisible depths. Moved by a sudden impulse, he groped for a loose stone and let it drop. He felt his heart beat many times before there was any sound. Then, far below, as if the stone had fallen into deep water in some cavernous place, there came a plunk very distant, but magnified and repeated in the hollow shaft. "'What's that?' cried Gandalf. He was relieved when Pippin confessed what he had done, but he was angry, and Pippin could see his eye glinting. "'Fool of a took!' he growled. "'This is a serious journey, not a hobbit walking party. Throw yourself in next time, and then you will be no further nuisance. Now be quiet!' Nothing more was heard for several minutes, but then there came out of the depths faint knocks. Tom-tap, tap-tom. They stopped. And when the echoes had died away, they were repeated. Tap tom, tom tap, tap tom, tom. They sounded disquietingly like signals of some sort. But after a while, the knocking died away and was not heard again. Oh, Pippin. <laughs> Pippin here being driven forward by his curiosity. And again, this is one of the reasons that I recapped their ages right at the beginning of tonight's session. Pippin is young he is a teenager by our standards and uh it's it's sometimes i i find myself swinging back and forth sometimes i condemn pippin at least as harshly as gandalf does and then other times i think well no okay look he's just driven by curiosity and he's being told that this isn't a hobbit walking party but a hobbit walking party is all he's ever had experience of this is a cool new thing in a cool new environment and he's just being adventuresome he's being Tookish. I mean, Tooks are defined by this. Hey, Gandalf, if you didn't want a Took in your party, you shouldn't have invited him. You shouldn't actually have pushed for his inclusion. Because, you know, Took's gonna Took. And if that isn't the next There and Back Again t-shirt, I don't know what is. Took's gonna Took. Kind of like it. Uh, so yes, Pippin drops the stone in, just a function of his curiosity. This isn't a Hobbit walking party, but to Pippin, at least in part... It's still driven by some of the same some of the same impulses. It's still driven by some of the same desires. Angela asks here, Aragorn keeps foreshadowing Gandalf. What does Aragorn know? The answer is outright nothing. Aragorn's relationship with prophecy is fascinating because he will utter prophetic things, and most often they will be true. But when they come true, he will be surprised by that. Like, he will call attention to the fact that he was, you know, right in his prophecy. We'll circle back around to that in the Two Towers a couple times over, in fact. 
Aragorn isn't possessed of any specific prophetic power, but he is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, heir of Isildur, of the line of the Dúnedain, you know. He is, he is the king, and that does give him some special capability. Yeah. Good. Skipa says, I would buy the shit out of that t-shirt, and I hate t-shirts. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Elizabeth Ray Stevens says, Took's gonna took need. Well, obviously, I mean, yours would have to say Belladonna Took's gonna Belladonna Took, which I think is just all the more appropriate. Um, let's push on then. Obviously, I'm accelerating here because, hey, you guys, we've got a song. We've got a song, and I've got, what do I have? Two more slides, three more slides still to get through. So uh, let's see what we can do in the next 10 minutes. Um, Aragorn knows Gandalf, says Becca Eller. Yeah, you know what? That might be enough, right? That that might be sufficient. Yes, terrible things are going to happen, Gandalf, because, you know, you're here. So, yes, good good. Heroes and Bards points out too, yes, Aragorn is himself the subject of much prophecy. Remember Bilbo's composed verse, the, the verse that we got first in Gandalf's letter back in Bree, and then Bilbo gave us the verse in its entirety during the Council of Aurond? The, uh, the, uh, goodness me, now I can't remember the first line of that thing. That's terrible. Um, all that is gold does not glitter, you know? Um, I think that's, that's interesting. Bilbo obviously believes that prophecy about Gandalf, uh, about Aragorn rather. Aragorn has this, yes, prophetic sense to his entire life and his outlook. Okay, this is one of my favorite poems that we're going to get in the entire book. And I know that I say that all the time, but here it is nonetheless. The world was young, the mountains green. No stain yet on the moon was seen. No words were laid on stream or stone when Durin woke and walked alone. He named the nameless hills and dells. He drank from yet untasted wells. He stooped and looked in mirror-mirror and saw a crown of stars appear as gems upon a silver thread above the shadow of his head. The world was fair, the mountains tall in elder days before the fall of mighty kings in Nargothrond and Gondolin who now beyond the western seas have passed away. The world was fair in Durin's day. A king he was on carven throne in many pillared halls of stone, with golden roof and silver floor and rooms of power upon the door, the light of sun and star and moon in shining lamps of crystal hewn, undimmed by cloud or shade of night that shone forever fair and bright, their hammer on the anvil smote, their chisel clove and graver wrote, their forged was blade and bound was hilt, their delver mined and mason built, their barrel pearl and opal pale and metal wrought like fish's mail, buckler and corset, axe and sword, and shining spears were laid in hoard. Unwearied then were Durin's folk. Beneath the mountains music woke, the harpers harped, the minstrels sang, and at the gates the trumpets rang. The world is grey, the mountains old, the forge's fire is ashen cold, no harp is rung, no hammer falls, the darkness dwells in Durin's halls, the shadow lies upon his tomb, in Moria, in Khazad-dûm. But still the sunken stars appear, in dark and windless mirror mirror, there lies his crown in water deep till Durin wakes again from sleep. So it should surprise us not one bit, of course, that this is absolutely written in the Dwarven meter. This is very similar to the Dwarven po poems that we got back in the pages of The Hobbit and even echoes some of the, sa some of the same ideas, yeah? A king he was on carven throne in many pillared halls of stone with golden roof and silver floor and runes of power upon the door. The light of sun and star and moon and shining lamps of crystal hewn. I love the last four lines there in the first column that you can see. Uh, 
the light of sun and star and moon in shining lamps of crystal hewn. Remember back in the Misty Mountains song that we got back in The Hobbit, where we catch the light and we entrap it in jams and the works of dwarven craft? That's exactly what we're getting here. But we go one step further here in, in Gimli's song. The light of sun and star and moon in shining lamps of crystal hewn. Yes, we caught the light of the world. We caught the light of the heavens and we, we trapped it. We, we cast it in crystal and in craft. But we go further than that. Undimmed by cloud or shade of night, they're shone forever fair and bright. Hey, you know what's better than the sun and the stars and the moon? Catching that light and putting it in a crystal and not having to think about clouds or night or, you know, nonsense like that. Our light shines forever. Uh... Alan is asking, what's Miramir? Miramir is a, uh, a tarn. It's in the Dimmerald Dale. We will get there uh, in just a couple of chapters' time. It, it's a, a tarn is a, uh, is a, uh, a mountain lake. Miramir is its name in common. Uh, mirror, of course, meaning mirror, reflective surface, and mirror being Middle English, meaning, uh, meaning lake. So the story here, let's try and, and, and parse this entire uh, Parse this entire thing. So the world was young, the mountains green, no stain yet on the moon was seen, no words were laid on stream or stone. No words were laid on stream or stone, nothing had been named, right? No, no names had been given to the world. When Durin woke and walked alone. Crucially, Durin of all the dwarven forefathers was not given a wife by Aule for some reason. There's never an account given of why that is true, but hey, it's apparently true. So he wakes and he walks alone. He named the nameless hills and dells. Again, we get the sense of, 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 you know, Christian theology kind of leeching in here. The role of Adam in the Garden of Eden was to name things, was to discern their true nature and purpose and to give them their names. And here, Durin is literally doing that. He's going out into the nameless world and naming it. He drank from yet untasted wells. He stooped and looked in Miramir. By the way, Miramir must have been a name that Durin gave to this lake because otherwise it wouldn't have had a name. So he stooped and looked in Miramir and saw a crown of stars appear as gems upon a silver thread above the shadow of his head. So he's seeing the, the you'll remember on the, the graphic that we saw of the door there, the seven stars arrayed above the crown, that is the symbol of Durin's, Durin's crown, Durin's, uh, Durin's uh, you know, um, his, his throne, I suppose. And then we come back. The world was fair. So the world was young, the mountains green. Then the world was fair, the mountains tall in elder days before the fall of mighty kings in Nargothrond and Gondolin who now beyond the western seas have passed away. The world was fair in Durin's day. And there's a little spark of something in that last line. The world was fair in Durin's day. Those of you who were with me for the reading of The Hobbit will remember that Durin's day is the day upon which the thrush is supposed to knock and the, the last rays of the setting sun will illuminate the secret entrance into the Lonely Mountain, into Erebor. Durin's day is the, the, uh, the last day of the dwarven year. But we don't mean that here. We're not, we're not talking about that specific day of the year. Instead, we're talking about his time, his period. The world was fair in Durin's day. A king he was on carven thrones. So we get this sense of, of, you know, Durin leading the kingdom into greatness. We get the many pillared halls of stone, golden roof, silver floor, the lamps that we discussed earlier. And then we get this, this beautiful and just relentless description. Their hammer on the anvil smote, their chisel clove and graver wrote, graver here meaning engraver, you know, someone who, who carves into things. Their forged was blade and bound was hilt, their delver mind, delver, you know, 
to, to delve, someone who delves. Their delver mind the mason built, their barrel pearl and opal pale and metal wrought like fish's mail, buckler and corslet, axe and sword and shining spears were laid in hoard, were creating art. And we talked about this back in The Hobbit. We're creating things of beauty which are weapons, but their primary function is not to kill. Primarily, they are beautiful. That's part of the dwarven craft and what differentiates them from goblin craft or, or orcish craft, if you like. Unwearied then were Durin's folk. Hey, we've just worked all day. We've created this amazing kingdom. We've got the, the golden roof and the silver floor and we've got the, the amazing axes and swords and shining spears. We've got everything that we could need. Did you see our crystal lamps? Our crystal lamps are pretty good. We've got everything, but they're still unwearied. Unwearied then were Durin's folk beneath the mountains. Music woke, the harpers harped, the minstrels sang, and at the gates the trumpets rang. All of this is calling back to the Misty Mountains Cold Song from The Hobbit, of course. It's all so, so evocative of that, and yet from a very different perspective. And then we get that hard cut. We get that hard switch here. So we get, in the first stanza there, the world was young, the mountains green. Then the world was fair, the mountains tall. The world is gray, the mountains, the mountains old. The forge's fire is ashen cold. No harp is rung, no hammer falls. The darkness dwells in Durin's halls. The shadow lies upon his tomb in Moria, in Khazad-dûm. So now we're in the present. The darkness awoke. We dug too deep. Whatever thing it was that claimed Khazad-dûm, claimed Khazad-dûm, and the dwarves left. The world is gray, the mountains cold, the forge's fire is ashen cold. The darkness dwells in Durin's hall. The shadow lies upon his tomb. Obviously, shadows are super important, you guys. You know, we keep referring to Sauron, the enemy, as the shadow, talking about his influence in terms of the shadow. The darkness dwells in Durin's halls. The shadow lies upon his tomb in Moria, in Khazadum, which is maybe the best line in the entire thing, which is why Sam will quote it in just a minute. But then we have this turn of hope again. But still the sunken stars appear in dark and windless mirror mirror. There lies his crown in water deep till Durin wakes again from sleep. So we begin with Durin waking. You know, when Durin woke and walked alone, we begin with him waking. And then we end with this prophecy again, that he will once more awake. And indeed he will. The history of Durin is an interesting one. There have been six uh, Durins um, through the, the lifetime of, of Durin's folk, if you like. Okay, So pretty much all of the dwarves that we have met in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit are Durin's folk. They are all of Moria originally. They are descended from Durin and not from the other dwarven forefathers, okay? So they're, they're Durin's folk, Thorin Oakenshield and, and all of his company and now, you know, Gimli too. They are all of Durin's line. And in that line, there have been six kings called Durin. Durin the first through to Durin the sixth, right? So those kings, though, aren't just inheritors of, of the title or inheritors of the crown. I mean, they are, but there have been other kings too with other names. But when a Durin comes around, it is thought to be a continuation of that original legacy, that Durin has again awoken. It's kind of like reincarnation if you get to be reincarnated as yourself again, you know? It's this, this sense of, of constancy and continuation. So there is a prophecy here, but still the sunken stars appear in dark and windless mirror mirror. There lies his crown in water deep till Durin again awakes from sleep. We're getting this idea that Durin may return. And because it's not relevant to the story in any way, minor spoilers, 
Durin's going to return. Durin VII will be born in about five years' time. He is the son of King Thorin III of the Lonely Mountain, King Under the Mountain. Um, so, yes, there will be a Durin VII. It's not going to take part in this story. It's part of the, the appendix, uh, appendix material that we get about what happens in the Fourth Age of Middle-earth. Um, but, yeah, Durin will return again. I just love this poem and the, the palpable sense that you get. In fact, let's move into our penultimate slide here for this evening. Since I'm already at time, hey, let's take another 10 minutes, right? Um, and we'll pick up directly from the end of the song. I like that, said Sam. I should like to learn it in Moria, in Kazadum, but it makes the darkness seem heavier thinking of all those lamps. Are there piles of jewels and gold still about here still? Gimli was silent. Having sung his song, he would say no more. Piles of jewels, said Gandalf. No, the orcs have often plundered Moria, and there's nothing left in the upper halls. And since the dwarves fled, no one dares to seek the shafts and treasuries down in the deep places. They are drowned in water, or in a shadow of fear. Then what do the dwarves want to come back for? asked Sam. For Mithril, answered Gandalf. The wealth of Moria was not in gold and jewels, the toys of the dwarves, nor in iron, their servant. Such things that they found here, it is true, especially iron. But they did not need to delve for them. All things they considered they could obtain in traffic. For here alone in the world was found Moria's silver, or true silver, as some have called it. Mithril is the elvish name. The dwarves have a name which they do not tell. Its worth was ten times that of gold. And now it is beyond price, for little is left above ground, and even the orcs dare not delve here for it. The loads lead away north toward Carathras and down to darkness. The dwarves tell no tale, but even as Mithril was the foundation of their wealth, so also it was their destruction. They delved too greedily and too deep, and disturbed from it and disturbed that from which they fled, Durin's bane. Of what they brought to light the orcs have gathered nearly all, and given it in tribute to Sauron, who covets it. Mithril. All folk desired it. It could be beaten like copper and polished like glass, and the dwarves could make a metal light and yet harder than tempered steel. Its beauty was like to that of common silver, but the beauty of Mithril does not tarnish or grow dim. The elves loved it dearly, and among many uses of it they made a thildin, star moon, which you saw upon the doors. Bilbo had a corslet of Mithril rings that Thorin gave him. I wonder what has become of it. Gathering dust still in Mickledelving Matham House, I suppose. What? cried Gimli, startled out of his silence. A corslet of Moria silver. That was a kingly gift. Yes, said Gandalf. I never told him, but its worth was greater than the value of the whole shire and everything in it. Mithril is a fascinating thing because here Tolkien is taking ancient legends of magic silver or of true silver or of steel silver. There are stories and kind of mythic representations of Mithril throughout various, uh, gosh, Anglo-Saxon and, and Norse mythic histories. But here he does something unique and, and brings it into the frame of the Lord of the Rings really beautifully. As he says, Mithril itself is the elvish name. The dwarves have a name that they do not tell. This was their primary trade in Khazad-dûm. Right, Moria existed primarily because of the trade, because of the 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 mining of the use of, but also the trade in Mithril, and yet they wouldn't reveal their name. That's how sacred the Mithril is. What's most interesting here, from a kind of uh, a textual point of view, perhaps, is that this was basically the passage in which Tolkien really worked out his ideas on Mithril, which seems odd. 
because Mithril was introduced back in The Hobbit. You know, Bilbo was given his little his little Mithril coat, what is called here a corslet. Uh, he was given his little Mithril coat back in The Hobbit. But that was a revision. That wasn't even a second stage revision. That was a third stage revision. The coat that Bilbo wore was not called Mithril until after The Lord of the Rings had been released. That was a late stage edition because Tolkien had, in this passage pretty much, worked out what Mithril was and what it meant and what it represented and then went back and seeded it through his his earlier work. He had a better name for it. I believe uh, Bilbo's coat, the coat that Frodo is in fact wearing right now as we speak, because a lot of people like to talk about, you know, mysterious or magical or important artifacts that they are wearing without ever mentioning that they're wearing them. Hey, Gandalf and your ring of fire. Frodo here, of course, is wearing the corslet that Bilbo was given, but doesn't mention it. Um, I believe that it was described as, as a true, as a true silver. Was it true silver or mm, no, now I don't recall. It may have been a true silver uh, corslet. Yes. Good. Okay. Let's uh, push on from there. Oh, one quick note here. So the dwarves are mining for Mithril. The loads lead north toward Carathras, bad news, as we know, and down, which is dangerous. Then they delve too greedily and too deep and disturbed that from which they fled Durin's Bane. We're not going to spend too much time on it next week because we're going to have a lot more to talk about, but it is clear from next week's reading that Gandalf does not know what Durin's Bane is is. He knows that they awoke something in the deep dark, and he knows that that forced the dwarves from Khazadum, and he probably expects that they have a pretty decent chance of facing it, but he does not know what it is. He is, I guess, not surprised when he beholds it, but, you know, a, uh, he, he, his suspicions are confirmed, at least we can say that. And from there, we're going to, uh, look on. Um, Glorfin David says, Gandalf calls it a corset here. In the movie, it was more like mail. Do you know if it was woven that way? It, it is, it is mail. It is, um, it is supposed to be chain mail. Yes. Um, a, a corslet is a kind of, um, is, is a measure of, of the, the type of body. Basically what, what Gandalf is saying is that it was a sleeveless vest. That's what he's describing here. But yes, uh, chain mail would have been the, uh, would have been the approach. Yes. Alan quotes here, Valyrian steel. Yes. <laughs> Good. Okay. Let's move on to our last uh, last slide of the evening, and boy, things take a turn, don't they? This is the slide of the tomb of Balin. It looks like a tomb, muttered Frodo, and bent forwards with a curious sense of foreboding to look more closely at it. Gandalf came quickly to his side. On the slab, runes were deeply graven. These uh, Daron's runes, such as we used of old in Moria, said Gandalf. Here is written in the tongue of men and dwarves. Balin, son of Fundin, lord of Moria. He is dead then, said Frodo. I feared it was so. Gimli cast his hood over his face. The end of Balin and his endeavors. And literally, that is what is written. Balin, son of Fundin, lord of Moria. The first three lines there are in uh, in Dwarvish and then in uh, in common tongue right there at the bottom. This is the end of Balin's expedition. This is the end of the recovery of Moria. And it certainly turns our sense of the Fellowship's journey here. One expedition, one well-equipped and capable expedition into Moria has already faltered, and it faltered in darkness, and it led to death. So we're worsening that situation. We're raising the stakes and we're raising the tension there. But for me, 
it's hard to think about the whole fellowship right now because what I'm thinking about is Gimli. Gimli cast his hood over his face without a word. So he sings his song, talking about the return of, of uh, Durin and the hope of that. And Sam says, that's an amazing song. And Moria in Khazad-dum, I'd like to learn that song. But Gimli has nothing more to say. Which also echoes Thorin, of course, all the way back at the very beginning of The Hobbit, where they sing the Misty Mountain song. And Bilbo says, okay, I guess I'm in. Tell me about the adventure. And Thorin says, didn't you just hear our song? What were we, talking French? The communication of important things through song for the dwarves seems vital. And Gimli here, this, this journey into darkness and through darkness, suspended in darkness, and now leading to actual death. This is, this is grim. This is tough for poor old Gimli. And I love how lightly we do it. Having sung his song, he said no more, and then Gimli cast his hood over his face. It's just gorgeous. Yeah. No balin, no treasure, no turning back. Way to bring down the room, Tolkien, says Becca Eller. Yes, I love that. Good. All right, and that will do it. Let me very quickly show you. So much slide this week. So much slide on, on the screen. The Fellowship of the Ring, book two, chapter five. The Bridge of Khazadum, 10 o'clock Eastern next Thursday. That's Thursday, August 31st. Uh, that is a short chapter, but it is a dense chapter. I will warn you in advance, I will be pulling pretty much the entire chapter for slides. Um, we're going to talk about pretty much every word of uh, chapter five of book two, The Bridge of Khazadum. And if you haven't read ahead, buckle up, buttercup. Things are going to get very, very serious next week in uh, there and back again. Thank you all so, so much for being here with me tonight. I'm sorry for keeping you just a little over time, but hey, you guys, we caught up. We covered a chapter and a half, and that's not nothing. If you have questions in the week ahead, you can email me directly at pointnorthmedia at gmail.com. If you are succinct, if you are terse even, then you can reach me on Twitter where you can find me at pointnorthmedia. If you have a moment to like this on iTunes to, to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. I guess that's what you do. You, you like and subscribe on YouTube, I guess, which you can also do. You can hit that little subscription button and, and make sure that you never miss a live broadcast from Point North Media. You can also spread the word of there and back again and get in touch with other people who might be interested in joining us on these little adventures. Thank you guys so much for being here this evening. I will talk to you all again next week. Until then, take care. <laughs>